This month we've been looking at the theme brand Jesus. Because when you have conversations with a lot of people out on the street, um, the distinction between one religion or one faith or another seems to be lost. People collect them all together and they say, well, really, they're just the same. But as you press into Jesus, you discover there's some uniquenesses that sets him out apart from other faiths and religions. What is it about brand Jesus that cuts through? And one of the things we're looking at today is the idea of anchored. If you follow Jesus for the three and a half years of his life ministry before he was crucified, you would have noticed two things about him. The first thing that you would notice is that the crowds mobbed him. Wherever he went, crowds mobbed him. The second thing you'd notice is that the critics despised him. And along the way, as he walked, the intensity of that criticism grew greater and greater until the events that led to his crucifixion. But if you looked at Jesus, you would notice that he remained the same, anchored. Character didn't change. Cause didn't change. He remained the same. How is that? How is that in our community, in our culture today, we can remain the same at anything? One of the buzzwords going around right now in psychology and education is this word resilience. Have you heard it? It's a good key word. It's actually part of what's grown out of the self-esteem movement, the idea that if we just encourage and praise our kids enough, that they'll grow up to be well-adjusted, able people. The problem they've found along the way, though, is that when you pump up individuals' tyres, um, just praising them all the time and removing adversity and the potential for failure, what it doesn't breed is resilient young people. What it breeds is people who collapse at the breath of a wind like a deck of cards. Uh, they can't hold on and, and somehow keep going when adversity strikes because they don't have the internal tools to be able to cope with it. This is a problem for young and old alike. It's not just for young people, but it's all the same resilience. So now what they talk about is process praise. If you can praise the good tools that are being used, the outcome will look after itself. Well done you for staying focused when you could have been distracted. Well done you for sticking to the technique of what you were doing rather than going off on a tangent. Well done you for placing those skills in, in place internally as well as externally that helped you achieve what you needed to achieve. Process, praise. Adults can fall into the same challenge. Have you ever noticed when the pressure's on you what you do? <laughs> when, when the pressure comes on and maybe you receive criticism... Or, or maybe there's pressure to conform to another way, how easy it is to shift your character or maybe the cause that you're heading towards. I remember this very clearly. It was uh, some many years ago now when I used to play football for Yulon, Yulon North. We were playing against this other team called Yarrigan down in the Mid-Gippsland League. It was Yarrigan's home ground and so each team provided their own goal umpire. It so happened that the goal umpire for Yarrigan's team was probably a gentleman well into his 80s and, and, and a little bit um, <coughs> fragile was probably the word to say. He was down there goal umpiring down the other end and during the, the game an incident happened that went something like this. Yarrigan snapped a clear point 
<laughs> Everyone saw that it was a point. The ball went through the point post. But as one, it was almost as though it was timed perfectly. All the Yarrigan supporters just jumped up and screamed. All the players sort of shook their fists and cried out aloud as though it was a goal. And the uh, gentleman, the goal umpire for Yarrigan, stood to attention in the middle of the goals and rightly signalled a point. But with the increased pressure and celebration of a goal... He just happened to join the fingers in the centre. It was a goal. No, it wasn't. It was actually pressure from the outside. How do we do it? And how did Jesus remain resilient when everyone else was criticising him? The mob crowded around him. The critics despised him. But somehow he anchored and remained the same. Some people would say, well, Troy, you talked to us two weeks ago about the word became flesh. That is, God dwelt in human flesh. Surely he just relied upon his superhuman God powers, his divinity. Well, actually, uh, some years later and from the very time in which people wrote about Jesus, they, they came to the conclusion that, no, wait a second, he wasn't just God in flesh. He was actually fully human, fully God together. And even though it was a mystery, those two things were joined together. 300 years afterwards, the leaders gathered in, in Nicaea and they said, you know what? Jesus isn't just a man, he's God. But then um, sometime later, they said, what we know to be true about Jesus is that he's fully God, fully human, both together. There's a mystery, which means they affirmed that Jesus bled, Jesus suffered, he knew despair, he knew aloneness, he knew grief, but yet he remained anchored to his cause, to go to a cross, to pave a way, for people like you and I to come to know their creator, to be forgiven, washed clean, the power of sin and death broken over people's lives, that you do not have to fear and you do not have to carry guilt because there's a God who loves and lives and wants you to know his eternal life right now. Jesus remained unwavering. Why is that? How is that? There's two stories I want to share with you this morning as we unpack this together. If you want to follow with me, you version the Bible app, you can do it on your phone. John chapter 5 and 6, you can look through some of those stories. The first story I want to take you to is beside a pool. I want to take you to a pool and then I want to take you to a mountainside and answer the question, how did Jesus remain anchored? And what does that mean for people like you and I? The story picks up beside a pool. Sometime later, John chapter 5, 1 to 3 says, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the sheep gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. In fact, if you go to Jerusalem today, just north of the Wailing Wall, you'll find that this site has been uncovered. It's an ancient site of which there's some pagan sort of um, symbols there as well. So this pool must have been one not only of significance to Jewish people, but for non-Jewish people who were serving and worshipping other gods. It goes on and says this, Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralysed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? <laughs> An interesting question. He's lying there. Oh, of course he'd want to get well, wouldn't he? But Jesus comes and asks him the question all the same. You've been lying here for so long. You're so used to doing the routine of becoming someone and being someone who's 
relying upon other people to help you out or maybe just staying with the rest of the crowd. Do you want to get well? His answer was yes, and Jesus saw the faith, the small amount of faith that he, he, he frequented back to Jesus, and so Jesus then said, pick up your mat and walk. And he did. He walked out of that place, not needing to rely upon any other gods or any of the miraculous powers of the pool. He just walked out under the power of Jesus. In fact, the story goes about this particular pool is that every now and then there were some air bubbles that would come up to the surface and people, the legend would say, would believe that there's an angel stirring the water. The first person to jump into the pool would actually be healed. Well, apparently the pool hadn't been stirred for some time or perhaps those powers of the, of the natural order weren't taking great effect because there was a number of people lying around that particular pool. Jesus said, stand up, and he did, and he walked. And as he was carrying his mat, there was some Judeans and part of them would have been a group by the name of the Pharisees who saw this man carrying his mat. They looked past the miracle and they looked to the mat. They said, why are you carrying your mat on this Sabbath religious holy day? You should be keeping God's laws. To which the man said, someone told me to do it. He found out that his name was Jesus. He said, this man called Jesus told me to carry my mat. And so it says about Jesus that the Pharisees or the Judeans at that time despised him because of it. Why would someone despise Jesus? Because he'd actually gone and procured a miracle. Well, in the culture of that day, there was a radical group by the name of Pharisees, self-appointed, and they would be very zealous for God. They believed that if they adhered to God's religious instruction in an elevated way, that somehow they could actually bring about God's life here on earth. It was about ritual purity. It was about the food they ate. It was about keeping Sabbath. But underneath this bubbling away of this extreme form of zeal, there was also a desire to actually take up arms and bring God's kingdom to earth through violence and through the sword and through bloodshed. And it was bubbling along the whole way through. As they washed their hands, it was a sign of separation from the Romans, separation from all those other people who weren't zealous for God. And when Jesus came walking through that place and, and dared to stand on one of their sacred cows, they reacted with criticism and violence. After this very moment, they plotted and schemed his death. The conversation went on and they said, and they challenged and they criticized. And this is how Jesus responded. He said this, Jesus gave them the answer, very truly I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. In verse 30, by myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear. And my judgment is just for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. You see, how is it that Jesus remained anchored in spite of criticism and pressure from others to conform to other ways to steer him off his course, is because he'd learnt to tune his ear to his heavenly Father's voice. My eldest son's been doing his learners' learning. I think L stands for listen. Because as over the last 12 months as he's been learning to listen, I've been thinking about my own learning and my father who taught me. 
I think it probably lasted only a few weeks <laughs> because of the intense criticism that I was probably heaping upon him during that time. So we naturally transposed that to another trainer who would um, train us and teach us to drive. You knew that you were doing well with this particular instructor because he would routinely fall asleep when he felt comfortable. <laughs> so by the end of the journey, if he was asleep, you're kind of knowing that you're improving. And then you'd stop the car and you'd give him a nudge and he'd wake up as though he hadn't really been asleep. He'd been just sort of paying attention to something else along the way. About three months after I got my license, I actually went out uh, driving at night time with a friend to a, a party and we were returning home. And as we were returning home, um, uh, we were driving through Heidelberg. It was the dead of night. It was about 1am in the morning. No cars anywhere. And he said to me, Troy, just do a U-turn here. Just, I know it's over the painted traffic line, but just do a U-turn. You'll have to go down there and turn around and come back up again. I said, no, 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 I think I need to go back. He goes, no, no, just, just do a U-turn here. No one's around, we'll just get home quicker. I said, no, 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 he goes, no, just do a U-turn here. And so what did I do? Did I listen to the voice of my father or did I listen to the voice of my friend? I listened to the voice of my friend, of course. And, and I did proceeded to do a U-turn uh, in the dead of night when no other cars around. And it just so happened in Heidelberg, there was a police car that was parked up the street, sneaking and hiding away. It was not fair to catch a poor unsuspecting P-plater like me. And so the blue lights went and, and the car came up behind. And I realized in that moment that I was tuning my ear to the wrong voice. You see, Jesus understood criticism. He understood pressure. So he would routinely run away, row away, hide away from his followers so that he could spend time tuning his ear to his heavenly father's voice so that he could draw encouragement and sustenance and direction as his father and he would communicate together to strengthen him for the tasks ahead. His disciples would look up and run after him, find him and say, where have you been? Why don't you, where have you, don't you know there's... Jesus understood the pressure of life, would routinely get away to tune his ear to the voice of his father's heavenly father. Let me ask you this question this morning. Maybe you're checking out God here for the first time and you're wondering, is there such a thing as a heavenly father? Well, I would give you this challenge. Routinely throughout the course of this week, why don't you ask? Find a, a space to yourself, a quiet space to retreat from and ask the question, God, if you're there and you're a heavenly father, would you guide me? Would you be involved in my life? What does that look like? I, I encourage you, just pray and try and see how God responds. Maybe you're here this morning and need to ask you afresh, are you tuning your ear to the voice of an encouraging heavenly father who wants to guide you. Because the challenges of life I find when the criticism rises up, when the, the challenges are there before you, when the pressures of the world seem to want to push you and prod you in a particular place, it's easy, isn't it? Like a deck of cards to buckle at the knees. But yet there's a resource available in tuning our ears to the voice of the Heavenly Father. Jesus routinely tuned his ear 
as he made time to retreat and get away and discovered in the conversation that there was a God who enriches, a father who loves, a shepherd who cares. Tuning our ears to the voice of a heavenly father that is a good one, that is good. The second is on a mountainside. Just the very next chapter, Jesus is located on a mountainside and it goes like this. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. John gives a hint. He says the Jewish Passover festival was here. And on that mountainside, Jesus performed perhaps one of his highlight miracles. Uh, they're at a picnic lunch. They'd run out of food. In fact, there wasn't much at all. And, and Jesus turned to his followers and said, how about you feed the crowd? And they turned back to him and Philip said, there's far too many. We couldn't do it with a year's wages. And so uh, he said to them, go and find what you have. And Andrew brought back a, a little boy's cut lunch, <laughs> some sardines from the lake and a few pieces of bread. And Jesus said, this will do. <laughs> he said, sit them down. And they did. And he prayed over it and he began to distribute the food, it says, so that everyone had enough to eat. Wow. Everyone had enough to eat, so much so that the people, when they're eating this food, they're thinking like a good Jewish boy or girl about, this has happened sometime in our past before, hasn't it? Wasn't it the time when Moses was taking us out of Egypt, we're in the wilderness, and God provided some bread? And so that as the penny's dropping, they're thinking, this is the one that was spoken about, the one who would come to liberate the Messiah, God's prophet, just like Moses. And it said they went to grab him to make him king by force. Jesus, again, understanding the subcurrent of violence and this revolutionary zeal, says he runs away. He actually makes it away and he retreats into the wilderness so that the, until the fuel of that endeavor to make him king by political force would actually subside and then he comes back and he talks to them a second time. He says to the crowd, I truly, I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and you had your fill. Jesus was saying in this moment, you're only following me because I filled your stomach. You're looking at things in a superficial way. What I want to offer you is something far deeper and more spiritual, but yet you're after me just because you want me to do the next magic trick for you and feed your mouths. And he went on and said this, Do not work for the food that spoils, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. They asked him, Which food is this that you will give? Because we'd like it. We don't want to be hungry anymore. And he said these words, Truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day, for my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Did this just get weird this morning? <laughs> Did this just, because is Jesus actually saying what I think he's saying? Jesus isn't actually asking people to become cannibals. He's pointing forward to the cause of what he's on about. I will give my flesh, I will give my blood so that you might know our life eternal. Don't just chase after me for the superficial. Yearn for me deeper for the spiritual, the one that will change the course of your life. 
after this that says they grumbled. They grumbled so much like those Israelites did in the wilderness that many of them turned away. This was the defining talk that overhalved his congregation, if you like. This was it. If you want to do a really bad talk and actually just, you know, that's it. The whole thing's just lost all the air in the balloon. This is the one. Eat my flesh and drink my blood. That would do it, right? With head spinning, this is what happened. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Jesus turns to his followers in this moment, fully God, fully human, and says, you don't want to leave me too, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You, you, you have the words of eternal life. And we have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. That you have extraordinary powers. You are the Holy One of God. You see, in this moment, I don't think Jesus is losing a sense of his identity, but he's experiencing the encouragement of other companions and fellow travellers along the way. You see, how is it that any of us can remain anchored to any cause, our character, in the midst of adversity and challenge? When we tune our ears to the voice of a heavenly father who wants to guide like a good shepherd and challenge like a good father or mother, but also that we surround ourselves with the encouragement of other traveling companions along the way. You see, the power of this drama sketch this morning was that so often we can feel like I'm encouraging other people, but we're not. The words that can come out of our mouths can be discouraging to say the least. But there is a power and a force and an energy that comes from people who decide to build up one another along the way, the way of faith, the way of life, the way. You see, there are words that are rich, that can speak life, and there are ones that can take away. I loved Linda's story this morning. Did you hear how the combination of our work vocation and going over and spending time can actually speak words of encouragement, traveling companions along the way. So let me ask you this this morning. Do you have companions along the way that will encourage you? The best way to get one, I find, is to be one. The best way you can be one is to go up to other people and intentionally go out of your way to say, how are you doing? I see this in you and I want to applaud it. Keep on going. How can I pray for you? You see, the beauty of traveling companions along the way is that when one trips up, there's another one to pick you up. When one falls over, there's another one to come and stand beside. When someone's going off course, there's another person to corral you back in because they want you to keep going in the same course for the right reason and It seems as though Jesus could remain anchored because he had experienced not only the tune of his father speaking to him, but he also knew the encouragement of traveling companions along the way. Pete's going to come right now and we're going to have a time where I'd invite you to engage with God. But let me ask you this, because as I've been preparing for this 
talk this week, at the top of my piece of paper I wrote out the words, I would like to encourage people who are struggling to know that there's a God who cares, there's a God who listens, there's a God who is with them. I want people to know who are struggling in the midst of maybe voices from outside to conform and to collapse like a deck of cards, to encounter the enriching power and life of God afresh in them. Because life's hard enough just with what's dealt to us. Isn't that right? (laughs) Mother's nursing babies. People doing their workspace, trying to achieve in their workspaces. Forging out a home. Studying and the routine of trying to cram our heads with information to conform to a, <laughs> an exam where our life seems to be graded on it. So I guess I wanted to, as I was preparing this week, to go for all those that just need to be encouraged to exhale and not listen to my words but to draw close to the voice of one who's like a good heavenly father good heavenly father who just wants to speak over people so let me carry let me walk with you the thing I find along the way is that with Jesus He doesn't remove obstacles or challenges. In fact, it seems as though God's in the business of letting obstacles and challenges come our way so that people who follow him might learn to be resilient, trusting, holding, gathering travelling companions along the way to stand by them so they may endure. This morning... If you're finding yourself untethered from God, in this space of worship now, I would invite you to open yourself up because there's a dynamic that happens when you say, God, you are God. Would you speak to me? Or I just want to honor you with my voice. I want to honor you with my thoughts. I want to honor you with my words. Something happens of renewal with inside of us. Human beings are made to worship. And when we worship the Creator, we are remade in His image. And we need that over and over because our fuel runs out. What would it mean for us as a community of people to embrace this idea of traveling companions and determine whenever I bump into someone along my way, a follower, I'm going to ask them, how are you doing? I see this in you. Keep going and how can I pray for you? Routinely, routinely. And when you bump into someone who doesn't, even better. How are you? I see this in you. Can I pray for you? I want to give you that challenge this morning. Take it up this week. Be a traveling companion for someone else. But don't forget, when you retreat and you make time, you open yourself up and say, God, you speak to me. I want to pour out what's happening in my life, you find that just like he did, when you tune your ears, there's a resilience to endure to eternity.